Well, good morning, church. Uh, it is wonderful to be able to uh, share in God's word with you all this morning. I want to say welcome to those that are joining us online, those that are joining us in Wills Point this morning. Again, it is great to be able to share with you. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to pick up um, as we have each week, right where we left off the previous week. So we're going to be in verses 9 through 16 this morning. Um, but I want to kind of back up and just recap the first handful of verses and just kind of look back at how Paul has begun this, um, this, I could, this, this teaching of, of a more practical nature as he writes to the Romans. In chapters 1 through 11, he lays out um, the foundational, the, the theological, the doctrinal truths that form the gospel. Um, the things in which we must believe and how we should believe. But then he shifts in chapter 12 to more of a practical response to that truth. And he begins in verse 1 and he tells us or he urges us by the mercies of God uh, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And then following that urging, that exhortation from him, uh, last week we, we looked at verses 3 through 8 and and Brandon walked us through just the short list, so to speak, of the gifts. So Paul outlines a few of the gifts that we are given um, and gifts that we are to use as we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And it brings us to verse 9 where Paul begins to outline some qualities, um, some things that should mark the believer as we use the gifts that we've been given to the end of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Um, you can overlay, you could, you could parallel uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 with, with chapter 12 here. Paul writes through the Corinthian church in chapter 12 and he, he begins to talk about giftings with them and he's addressing just this incorrect use that they have for the gifts. And as he begins to exhort them there for just their carnal behavior and how they exercise those gifts, he gets to chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, and this is the, the love chapter of your Bible. And he outlines the thing that we should seek for above all else, above any gifting that might be desired, is that we should desire to love and to love well. So as we parallel that with our text this morning, Paul not shockingly begins... In verse 9, and he begins with love. As he talks about things that mark the believer, mark the Christian, he begins with love. And he tells us, he says, let love be genuine. And he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. But he says, let love be genuine. In the NIV, it says, let love be sincere. The NASB says, um, says let love be without hypocrisy. You know, we shouldn't go to one another. We shouldn't greet one another in such a way. When, when he addresses the church, he's, he's addressing the church um, in the assembly so that when we come together, he's encouraging us that when we come together, our love should be without hypocrisy. We shouldn't greet one another and smile as if we're okay with one another and then walk away and not be. He's saying, don't say one thing, but show another thing. Let it be genuine. Let it be sincere and how we approach one another. It's to not say one thing and show another. It's to care and be real with one another, be honest with one another, and genuine with one another. And then he says, then love abhors what is evil and it holds fast to what is good. 
So it abhors. The word there, it means it to, de- de- to detest or hate. So love abhors what is evil. It hates what is evil, but it holds fast to what is good. So what is evil and what is good here? So love must be discerning. If we're to abhor what is evil, if our love is to be genuine, is to be sincere, but then we're to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good, there should be a discernment on what is evil and what is actually good, correct? So we have to, we have to look and with wisdom understand, we have to know, we have to be able to recognize that what is evil, that what is wrong, versus that what is good. So that we're clinging to the right thing and detesting the right thing. And as we discern what is evil or what is wrong, what is good, when we see something that's wrong, we need to be willing to, to stand up and speak out against that thing. Now, oftentimes, when we think of love, love is just is, is, is forgiving, of course. Uh, being loving is to forgive. But oftentimes, we can show grace, right? Being love is to show grace, absolutely. Uh, showing love is to show grace to one another. But at the same time, it can be equally unloving to not speak the truth to one another. If we are to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good and we recognize something to be evil, something to be wrong, there needs to be a willingness in us to point that thing out, to call that thing out and seek to remove it and restore that which is wrong to that which is right and good. We must be willing to detest sin but call sin, sin when we see it. J. Vernon McGee He said this, he says, my friend, you are to stand up for for the truth. We've got too many willy-nillies today. We've got too many goody-goody gumdrops, Priscilla good bodies, these sweet little things these days that haven't the intestinal fortitude to stand on their feet and stand for that which is honest. Now, those are strong words. I mean, he said this some probably 40 or 50 years ago. But I would say the same is true for today. There's a lot of people that, that... that just lack some, some fortitude, lack some boldness to speak up against what we know to be wrong. And in that, we can be equally as sinful in not speaking up. Because when we do that, if you think through, if we're to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good, if we're unwilling to speak out against what we know to be sinful and we know to be wrong, then what are we really clinging to? Are we clinging to good? Or are we allowing Sinful things. That's, that's part of what Paul admonished the Corinthian church for. Is he writes to them and he addresses their use of the spiritual gifts, their incorrect use. It was sinful and he called it out because it was damaging to the body. So there must be a willingness to do it. Now while this statement is true, we do recognize and acknowledge the difficulty of it. Even from my own heart, my own mind, it is not easy to confront People in their sin, oftentimes, but the necessity is always present, regardless of the ease or the difficulty with which it is. Scripture would implore you, implore us to call that out, to seek to correct, so that people would find healing. There would find we would find confession and repentance in those things when we call it out. But let's look at a biblical example here um, in Galatians chapter two. Um, Verses 11 through 14, Paul tells us this. He says that, um, he says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
or he was wrong. He was found to be guilty. He was, he was false in what he was doing. Uh, for before certain men came from James, James was at the church in Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, at this point in time, this isn't, this isn't Paul writing to the Romans. This is Paul, three years in, baby Christian Paul, and then you hear have Cephas, who is Peter. Cephas means rock. Jesus told Peter that you are the rock on which I will build my church. So here you have Peter, the rock on which the church is built. And he comes to this church at Antioch and he begins to talk and sit with the Gentiles and spend time with the Gentiles because he understood he had this vision from the Lord, the sheet coming down from heaven with all these unclean animals on it and clean animals. And he gets this vision from the Lord and the Lord tells him that the salvation is for the Gentile. It's not just for the Jew it is for the Gentile like, and he goes there, he's sitting with the Gentiles, he's not showing any partiality or any favoritism whatsoever. But then all of a sudden, some Jews from James, the church at Jerusalem, came to Antioch. And as soon as they entered, Peter seeing them, fearing what they would think, removed himself from the Gentiles and stood with them. All of a sudden, partiality came into play, favoritism came into play, and in a way, baby Christian Paul sees this. But he recognizes the error. He recognizes how sinful and how wrong. This is the first Gentile church in Antioch at this point in time in church history. And the continuation of that church could very well swing on Peter, on how Peter acted, but how Paul responds when he sees it. He was willing to call out Peter of all people. He saw sin. In order to abhor what is evil, to cling to what is good, he called him out and called sin, sin. But care must be taken here. Care must be taken here because I don't mean to say if you hear something from the pulpit up here that you think, oh, I don't really agree with that and you have freedom to just stand up, oh, I don't agree with that, brother. That's not exactly what Paul is talking about here, care must be taken. Jesus, he tells us in Matthew chapter seven, verse five, he says, you hypocrite, he first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So when we go to one another, when we do see sin, when we recognize sin that's present, the first thing that we should do before we go pointing out that sin in others is we should self-reflect on ourselves is get the log out of our own eye before we point out the speck. But Paul knew the implications of that sin. And it was very public. Perhaps the church held in the balance, but there was a willingness on his part and a boldness on his part. He had the intestinal fortitude to stand up on truth and what was right and to proclaim that. But we should be discerning in that. But the clarity comes in that when we hold fast to what is good. The word hold fast there in the Greek is kalao. 
It means to glue or weld together. What he's saying is we should hold fast to good in such a way as if we're glued or welded to it, as if we cannot in any way be separated from that good. The contrast there is when we abhor or we hate or detest evil, we remove ourselves from that evil to such the extent that we would cling to, glue ourselves to what is good and hold on to what is good. But again, we must be discerning of what is good in order to hold fast to it and not hold fast to something else. In verse 10, Paul then tells us, he says, let your love be genuine in verse nine. And then he says, in that love, we are to love one another with a brotherly affection or a brotherly love. It's the mutual love. When we, when we look at the word there for brotherly affection, it carries the idea of a mutual love between parents and children or wives and husbands. It's a tender love. It's a familial love, which we are to have for one another. So when we come and we go here, when we, when we assemble together, when we fellowship together as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should love one another as if we are family, as if we are blood brothers and sisters. But think about this for a second. In, in the body of Christ or the family of God, as sons and daughters of God, children of God, brothers and sisters of, in the faith, what is the one thing that holds us together above all else? What is our commonality? Our commonality is Christ. And our commonality is the presence of his spirit living in each and every one of us. It is the same spirit in you and you and you and you that is in I, in me. And that spirit binds us together as family. So say there's two twins sitting in this room. If there are twins, I'm not talking directly to you. But if there's two twins in the room, say one of them is a believer and the other one's not. The one that is a believer is closer to the person, the believer sitting next to them that's not a twin than they are to their own twin because of the bond that they have in Christ. And that's what Paul's getting at. We're to love one another with a brotherly affection. In John chapter 13, Jesus tells us this, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. To the church at Thessalonica in chapter 4, he says in verse 9 and 10, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. See the commendation to the church there? He says, as it pertains to brotherly love, I don't have to write to you about that at all. He says, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Where does the teaching come from? Remember, whenever we think of how do we cling to what is good, how do we discern what is, what is evil and what is good to abhor one, cling to the other? The way we discern that is if we trace back to chapter 12, verse 1, Present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God. Verse two, be transformed by renewal of our mind. The transformation in our life happens when our mind is renewed. Our mind is renewed because of the presence of the Spirit living in us. And then he says, then we will be able to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see that? You see how that word, how Paul draws this out of those first two verses of chapter 12? If you look, just if you go back chapters 1 through 11 and grab that doctrinal truth, but then shift 
to how we respond in it. Two verses, and Paul pulls all of this out of there. And again, if we continue as he would, how he commends the church at Thessalonica. In 4.10, he says, For that indeed you are doing well to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But then he says this, But we urge you, same words as verse 1, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Church, when it comes to love, when it, when, it come, when it comes to that aspect, that quality, that mark of a believer, with the presence of the Lord in us, when it comes to that love, it's not a point where we say, hey, man, I just love you, and just, I love you this much. Paul urges do that more and more and more. You continue on that. You give that away and you give that away and you give that away and you do it with genuine nature and sincerity without hypocrisy. And this idea follows as, 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 as we come, come back to Romans uh, chapter 12, um, verse 10, the second half of it. Now he says, outdo one another in showing honor. All right, so love one another with brotherly affection, but then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, the word for outdo there is proegeomai. But what that word means is to go before and show the way. It's to lead. It's to go before as a leader. The NASB translates this to give preference, to prefer others before you, but to lead the way in doing that. And if we're to lead in this way, we're to lead one another in showing honor or outdo one another in showing honor, give preference to others in showing honor, if we're to lead in that way, who is leadership for? Is leadership for the one that's doing the leading? Or is leadership for the one that's doing the following? The reason that God gave leaders to the church was not for the leaders themselves. He gave leaders to the church so the church would follow the leaders. As Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul is the leader that we imitate. So his life is set before us for you and I as we follow him. Christ leads us. We are his disciples. His leadership is for us. So when we think of this, and Paul says to outdo one another, lead the way in showing honor to one another, we're to lead out in that so that others would see that and follow after the same. And he says there to, to do that in showing honor. The word for honor, it's, it's to esteem or to value it's teme in the Greek, and it means highly value or esteem. But it can also mean deference or reverence. Chuck Swindoll says, says practically that honoring someone begins with a willingness to let another have his or her preference in non-essential matters. We are to listen when someone speaks and give his or her words careful consideration. We must allow others to differ from us, respecting their opinions, even though we disagree. I want to back up and read that one more time. And I want you to think about how you honor, how often you show honor in arguments with your spouse, arguments with your children, conversations at work. But honoring someone begins with a willingness to let another have his or her preference in non-essential matters we are to listen when someone speaks and give, his, and give his or her words careful consideration. We must allow others to differ from us, respecting their opinions, even though we disagree. How much dishonor do we see 
in our day and age. Paul is addressing the church, but if we were to just step outside the church for just a minute, what, did the, what does the world need to see? They need to see people honoring one another because there's dishonor all over the place. And the way we acquiesce our culture is when we in the body of Christ do the opposite of what Paul says. Is he says to outdo one another in showing honor. How often are we backbiting one another? How often are we wanting to be right and someone else to be wrong? How often does pride creep in and we don't listen to one another? We think the worst of one another. We refuse to listen to one another and we look exactly like the world that we would say we abhor. Thus, we're not loving without hypocrisy. But husbands, how do you honor your wives? 1 Peter 3, 7. This was a verse that I learned, um, memorized, I, shortly before I got married. But Peter encourages the husband. He says, live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to her as the weaker vessel so that your prayers may not be hindered. In my childishness, I would memorize that verse because I don't want my prayers to be hindered. I don't know about you. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to live with my wife in an understanding way. I'm going to show honor to her without thinking through what those things mean. So then when I encounter my wife as we begin our marriage together, I realize, man, there's a lot that I just don't understand. <laughs> and in my frustration, I can seek to understand but as I seek to understand, I'm forgetting the second half of that and how I should be showing honor to her. Because I don't want to be wrong. Believe me when I tell you, it's not so much that I want to be right in my arguments. I can come off that way. Some of you have told as much to me that I tend to, to try and have the last word on things. But it's a fear of being wrong. But that doesn't honor my wife whenever we engage with one another. If we disagree with one another, I'm too quick to try and be right or not be wrong, but I'm too quick to convince her that I'm correct in some way. I'm not giving preference on non-essential matters. Now, are there, there are some things, of course, within our marriages where we are meant to lead but the other side of that is, wives, how are you how do you defer to your husbands? But the challenge is that, that, that for you and I, oftentimes, any one of us, we are too quick to Ephesians 5 somebody. What do I mean by Ephesians 5 somebody? Ephesians 5 is a chapter where Paul writes to the Ephesian church, and this is where he tells, tells wives, his wives, submit to your husbands. Right? So, so oftentimes, we, men, we can take that right out of context, and we can say, you're supposed to submit to me. And then if she knows it, she'll fire back. Well, you're supposed to sacrifice for me. Children should be obeying their parents. But parents, you should be leading and not provoking your children to anger. Masters or employers, you're to care for your employees. Employees, you're to submit there. But we can get all these relationships out of order, dishonoring one another because we're consumed with ourselves and how we're disrespected possibly in those moments. And we completely forget what Paul says before Chapter 5, before that part of chapter 5, in 521, Paul tells the Ephesian church, he says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The 
The way we revere, the way we honor the Lord is the way we honor one another in all of our relationships, especially, as Paul says, within the body, as we come together. If our love is genuine, if it's without hypocrisy, if we're real with one another and how we care about one another, Paul says to outdo one another in this area. If if there's an area that we're to compete in, let's compete in showing honor to one another. What a blessing that would be to our body. Think through that. If everyone deferred in some way to someone else, if we were marked in such a way, but we should be the ones leading the way in this and esteeming others. Which brings me back to John chapter 13. As Jesus said in verse 34, that a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Verse 35, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He says all people. It's not just believers. But all people. The way we are a witness to the world is that we look different than the world. The way we engage with the world certainly has to be with love and with grace. It has, we have to engage with the world the same way that God engaged with the world in that he sent his son who didn't think equality with the father was something to be grasped, but emptied himself, humbled himself to the point of death and sacrificing himself. That is the life. That's what marks the believer and how we respond to one another. But if we're unwilling to respond to one another in such a way, why would we do it out there? And why would someone see any different? But the trouble is they will see a believer claiming to be a believer, but see a life different than that. Why would they want to be something that they already are? It has deep implications for us, church. And how we look at what Paul says and how he encourages us. Now the next six verses, we can find nine qualities of love uh, that Paul outlines. Um, nine qualities of love, things that, that should come out of us if our love is genuine. First in verse 11 is, is we should be passionate. He says, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. He says, serve the Lord. The word for fervent, it, it means to boil with heat, to be hot. It's the idea of excitement. If you just, if you watch, you know, after it starts boiling, you know, if you sit there and watch water and wait for it to boil, it never boils, but just wait till it starts boiling and then look at it and you see how much of a frenzy the bubbles are. It's going crazy. It's boiling over. That's the idea of being fervent in spirit. Benjamin Zander Uh, He was a music professor and one-time conductor of the Boston Philharmonic. And he wrote a book on music in everyday life. And he just kind of correlated music with everyday life. Uh, And in in a chapter on passion, he included a story of a student who who played chopping perfectly. He played it perfectly, but he lacked the essential quality that makes music great. And Chuck Swindoll quotes him saying this... um, This is Xander saying, um, he says, a young pianist uh, was playing a chop and prelude in my master's class, and although we had worked right to the edge of realizing an overarching concept of the piece, his performance remained earthbound. He understood it intellectually, 
He could have explained it to someone else, but he was unable to convey the emotional energy that was the true language of music. Then I noticed something that proved to be the key. His body was firmly centered in the upright position. He says, I blurted out, the trouble is you're a two, you're a, you're a, you're a two buttock player. Sorry, I felt weird about saying buttock in church. But you're a two buttock player. I encouraged him to allow his whole body to flow sideways, urging him to catch the wave of the music with the shape of his own body. And suddenly the music took flight. Several of the audience gasped, feeling the emotional dart hit home as a new distinction was born, a one-buttock player. Church, how awesome would it be if we were one-buttock believers? If we weren't slothful in our zeal, if we weren't lazy in our zeal, but we were fervent in spirit, if we were one-buttock believers, if we moved with such energy and passion, how people would respond to that? As he says, the audience gasped when they saw the difference in a rigid player. It makes me think of days when I stood back here and I played the lead guitar on the worship team. Many of you may not know that, but for years I did that. And I remember when I started, the first time I had a guitar in my hand, I've never played in a band really, wasn't in front of people, and I was rigid. I was uncomfortable. But when I began to feel that music and move with that music, for my own heart was blessed by the flow that would take as I was fervent in spirit. And it's my belief that people respond to that. And even now, that's how we should be leading in worship. That's how we should be singing and praising the Lord together. That's how we should be interacting with one another as we come and go. Let's be one buttock believers. Verse 12, he says, be hopeful, patient, and prayerful. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. He says, we will experience tribulation. At some point, it is gonna come. It is all but promised to the believer that we're going to experience tribulation and trial. In Acts 14, Luke tells us that, that Paul, when he was in Lystra, he was stoned by the Jews and he was thrown out of the city. But then the disciples helped him up and he went on about his way and he continued making disciples. He went back to the city. That's fervency. That's knowing his mission, what he's to do. And then he tells them, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulations will come. But like bookends to this verse, if we rejoice in hope, if we're patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. The way we are patient in tribulation is that we're constant in prayer, in prayer and we rejoice in our hope. We have hope in the glory of God. We have hope in what is to come. That these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And we pray, we intercede for one another on the behalf of the saints for the struggle that we may find ourselves in. Verse 13, he says, then to be generous and be hospitable. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. He says to contribute, it's koinoneo. It's the idea of, of coming into communion or fellowship with someone. It's to become a sharer or be made a partner in something. In Acts 2, directly following the birth of the church, not the local church, the church, the people responded in such a way. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, to the prayers. 
If you were at Foundations 2 on Tuesday night, this should be very familiar to you. What's the word for it? If you know it, you can go ahead and say it. But the fellowship, koinonia. Paul says to contribute to the needs of the saints, koinoneo, the verb form of koinonia. Acts chapter 2, verse 44 through 45 Luke tells us, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs to all as any had need. They were generous with what they had. But genuine love gives sacrificially. Genuine love gives even when it hurts, even when it's difficult, even when things are tight, even when inflation is higher than it's ever been. Generous believers give generously. Because they love genuinely. To any need, there's a willingness to give of ourselves. Love is not stingy. And again, this is the practical nature of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And he says that we're to be hospitable. The word means it's a, it's a love of strangers. So here he just he looks with that outside of the body. Either outside of the body or he looks to, to those still within the body that are strangers to us that may not be part of the local congregation. They may be part of another local church down the way that we should be hospitable to one another. We should extend that love to those that are different than us. We should extend it to other cultures. We could, should extend that to other races. We should extend that to others that, that believe differently than we do. There's no distinction there. We're to be hospitable. How else do people respond to the gospel if they don't see God's people being God's people to the world? As we are, we are his witnesses. We're to make disciples of the nations, but we need to be hospitable in order to do that. And then he says to seek to show hospitality. We shouldn't just sit back and wait for someone to come to us and all of a sudden, okay, now I can be hospitable because someone's shown up on my door. No, it's seek to show. It's seek out ways to show hospitality. It's a bit more challenging when you think of it that way because we can easily sit back and wait for somebody to come. We should seek to show hospitality. Verse 14, we're to be gracious. Here's where things get really difficult. Verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Right? Matthew 5, 44 and Luke 6, 28, Jesus says very similar. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and bless those who curse you. So this is undoubtedly one of the, if not the most difficult facet of love. And it was true then, it is true for us today and it runs completely counter to every natural instinct sinful man possesses. Our natural instinct is to return in kind what people do to us. When we're wronged or we're hurt, our immediate first preeminent inclination is to respond in kind plus 10. And if you struggle to believe that, when school starts, go watch recess at the middle school or the intermediate school. I promise you will have opportunity to see the natural response when we're wronged or we're hurt. Some kid will end up competing on something, end up on the ground, get mad, and will respond in kind. They will turn their dial to 10 plus 1 and roll back. But Jesus says we are to bless. Paul says we are to bless those who persecute, bless those who, and bless and do not curse them. 
There'll be more on this next week because Paul opens this up some more in verses 17 through 21. But then verse 15, he says, be sympathetic. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. He says, genuine love is involved in the lives of those around us, in the highs and the lows. In my study of this text and preparing, I came across this Swedish proverb and it says, shared joy is double joy, shared sorrow is half sorrow. Isn't that true? When we see someone happy, laughing, and joyful, it's contagious. When we see that across the way, we want to be a part of that conversation because it's, it's joyful. Genuine love seeks to join in in that. Genuine love doesn't stand over here. I don't want any part of that joy. But it rejoices with those who rejoice. But it also, on the opposite side of that, it weeps with those who weeps. It's willing to step into the sorrow of others and empathize and take that on as our own. And church, there's always opportunity. That's why we implore the body to be in community with one another because we all have moments in life where we need comfort of one another. Verse 16, as we wrap up, Paul says, be humble. Says to be humble. He says, live in harmony with one another. He says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. He says, never be wise in your own sight. But he says, live in harmony with one another. Again, the NESB translates this to be of the same mind with one another. It's phroneo. But it's, to, it's, it's, not to, it's not to think everything the same way. Not to think the same way. It's not to group think. But it's to, to be for the same things. That's what it means to have the same mind. As the body, when it comes to the essentials of our faith, we're all for the same things. And there is grace and deference. Again, we show honor in the things that are non-essential as we walk in humility before one another. This contrasts chapter 12, verse 3, as we talked last week. He says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. If be of the same mind is phroneo, and that we should have the same mind, when Paul says not to think of himself more highly, that's hyperphroneo. That's thinking of yourself, not of the same mind with others. You have the one mind for yourself. You're thinking of yourself too much. You're building yourself up too much over everyone else. And it lacks humility. But humility seeks to understand before being understood. It prefers to communicate instead of battling with words. It seeks out common ground without sacrificing truth. And he says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. These are direct opposites of one another. To be haughty is to be, is to be high or lofty. It's to be esteemed is what the word would mean, to be haughty. But when we think of ourselves on the negative side of that, when we are haughty individuals, we're esteeming ourselves instead of others. We're honoring ourselves. We're building up too much of our self-esteem. Too much self-esteem is narcissism. That's the idea of being haughty. We're concerned only with ourselves. And again, back to verse three. Instead of thinking to the needs of others with the same mind, we're thinking too highly of ourselves. And instead, we're to think with sober judgment in verse three. We're to have a modest view of ourselves instead of such a high view of ourselves. This keeps us from elevating ourselves above 
the lowly. So opposite of haughty and high and lofty, lowly means not rising far from the ground. That's what the word means. It's not coming off the ground very high at all, but metaphorically, it describes someone of a low degree. And in Roman and Greek culture, for someone to associate, for someone with high status to associate with someone of low status was to kill any ambition that they may have societally. So they avoided that at all costs. James exhorts us, he admonishes us to not do that. He says, show no partiality, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. He gets right to it. There shouldn't be favoritism among us. We should not be haughty, but associate with the lowly in every sense. And humility guards us from this. And then he says, never be wise in your own sight. Proverbs 26, 12, he says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? He says, there is more hope for a fool than for him. Such truth is corroborated by Paul as he admonishes again the Corinthians. Such example we have, it's fresh because as a body right now we're walking through uh, 1 Corinthians. And um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 through 29, Paul addresses this and he says this. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then in chapter three, verse 18 through 20, he says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. See, there's more hope for a fool than the man that's wise in his own eyes. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. May we walk in humility, church. May our love be genuine toward one another. If Christ, if in Christ the old has gone away and the new has come, this is what marks the new. Paul tells us this is what the new looks like in our lives. We put off the old, we put on the new. When we put on Christ and we're walking in genuine love, these qualities persist in our lives and they effectuate a living sacrifice. That's the practical tie to verse one. When we think through how is it really to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, we live a life marked by love and these qualities of it. And not for ourselves, but for the body of Christ And the body of Christ exists not for just the body of Christ. The body of Christ exists, the church exists for the world. For the world to see the gospel, to know the gospel, to respond to that gospel, to hear the doctrinal truth of chapters one through 11, that sin exists, they're full of it, they're unrighteous, that the wrath of God is revealed against them and in their unrighteousness. Chapter five of Romans tells us that death is the penalty But God in his goodness and his love sent his son to be the propitiation of that sin, to lay down his life for the forgiveness of that sin. They may be justified by faith in him and putting their faith there, then their life becomes marked by the same thing. And there's another individual on this planet that you share the same mind with. 
that you would share brotherly affection with, that you would show honor to. That is the true, that is the mark of a true Christian. And I pray that is what we find ourselves to be every day. And when we are marked by less than that, I pray that there is someone near that is walking in genuine love and in genuine love would point that out in me. Would love me enough to pull me aside and say, hey, Cody, that was wrong. James ends his letter by saying that, that the one that brings a brother back from wandering covers a multitude of sins. And I pray that we'd be marked in such a way that we wouldn't look to others and we wouldn't seek to find something wrong that we can point out. We would walk humbly before one another. We would love one another. We would outdo one another in showing honor and esteeming one another. Every relationship in this room could instantly change if we would live according to this. And this is true for my life. Because it's not easy. We still live in a fallen, broken world. But the church, we're it right now. To show the world what it looks like to follow Christ. And that's the way our church changes. That's the way our communities change. Our county changes. That's the way our culture will begin to change. But if it doesn't begin right here, nothing else will change. But I pray that we begin to take steps towards that. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word, Lord, and for giving us this, this outline in some way, these, these, these qualities, these attributes, these things um, that we're, we're meant to do, the way that we're meant to act, the way that we're meant to live. You don't just say, hey, present your body as a living sacrifice without telling us what that even looks like and how to do it. And I thank you for your word, the testimony of your word, the instruction of your word, Lord, to not leave us to figure this thing out on our own. I thank you for your church. I thank you for brothers and sisters in my life that are marked by these things and living in such a way that they would challenge me, they would correct me, they would rebuke me, they would exhort me, they would admonish me, Lord, and others as well, Lord, for your glory, for our good. And I pray that we learn to do that well in genuine love within your body. And it's in your